Hey everyone, it's Mark Lee Shannon with another tale from the bright side of recovery. Our next guest is a well-known Cleveland-based musician who talks about his career playing with some of the best in the biz. Billy Sullivan has had a long and expansive time in the bright spotlights, but it was another kind of light. A blinking, flashing red light after a routine medical exam that made him take stock of his life and choices. Listen now as he talks about that turn onto the road of sober living. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast. Dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma, and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks, right now. So welcome, everybody, to this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm here with my friend, my good friend, Billy Sullivan. How you doing, man? Good to see you here today. Good to see you, Mark. Good morning. You know, I want to thank you for for joining me today. Uh, Billy's got a really great story, and and we're going to talk about it. But before we do, let me just go off on you a little bit and tell all our listeners about you. So Billy became a professional musician at 13 years old. Man, how did you get into clubs when you were 13, man? You know? Well, I actually had my folks with me. Awesome. You know, but it was one of those things where I was like always the youngest guy in the band. Yeah. So that kind of helped. That's absolutely my story, except I was sneaking into JBs and places in Kent, and somehow I had this strange, Mm -hmm. not quite real ID at that point. So I think that was the beginning of the first chapter of the book of my regrets as a musician, because I saw all those great Kent bands, right? All those great Kent bands we grew up in, I'm thinking, wow. Right. And I thought that's what a great band was, and little did I know how great those bands were, you know? Sure. Um, So you also uh, started playing in bands in 1975. You did a stint with Gary Lewis and the Playboys, man. Tell me about that. How did that work out? I was with him 23 years. Wow. Yeah, I met him here in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'll never forget it. I was I, I went down to the Pirates Cove in the flats because mm. uh, a friend of mine was doing monitors for him. And I'm walking down the ramp into the club, and there he is up on stage. Up, he was singing My Sharona. Oh yeah, and he was singing it good. It's like wow, that's that's actually Gary Lewis. Did you know it was Gary Lewis? I mean, did you know who he was then? Because yes, I remember seeing the publicity photos from like the '60s when it was kind of like almost Dino Desi and Billy kind of thing, right? Yeah, right. That that era. But I I don't know if I would recognize him later on. But so how did you how did you connect with him? How did that work out for you? A bass player friend of mine, Bill Vendetti. His then girlfriend was really good friends with Gary's then wife, Patty. And uh, it was one of those situations where Gary needed a, a, a slimmed down band to go to Portugal. Mm. And uh, he needed somebody that could play drums and play guitar. You know, because, you know, Gary did play drums on like the like the first earlier hits. That's awesome. That's but awesome. At this point, he was he was fronting and playing guitar. So right. whenever the times he would go behind the drums, I would step up and play guitar. Right. But that was in my early tenure. There was a lot of my tenure where I was just the guitar player. Right. And then towards the end of my tenure, I would, went back to being his drummer. So it was like a back and forth thing. I think you know my story a little bit. I was out in LA in my 20s and I was always surprised by those guys who had, you know, some spotlight on them that could really play. I mean, they were real players. They had, they had grown up with cats around them. It was like no, you know, like TV personality, like, yeah, I can play two beats. No, they could play. 
they had, they had timing and they could play. So more about you, man. So you played in a lot of amazing Cleveland bands, you know, that are really, really well known. I mean, Boku, the Paul Pope band. I mean, all those bands I, I had heard about. Now, I left for LA when I was in the, probably in 79 and didn't come back to almost 1990. But even I knew about those bands, you know. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about you and Gary Lewis, and you got to tour all over the world. And, you know, you got on some great bills, man. Mark Lindsay, Mitch Ryder, Dickie Best, Peter Frampton, man, come on, come on. You know what I mean? Yeah, we were actually the Playboys. We were the backing band for a lot of those guys. Wow. You know, they, they, put, they put together multiple acts, 60 shows, and have set changes in between each act. Yeah, yeah. They have one band to make it, make it run a little bit more smooth. How much rehearsal did you get with that stuff? Did you get a lot of rehearsal? Soundcheck. <laughs> so basically, we, we, get, uh, we would either get charts. Right. Or back then a cassette tape and then, or any specific. Uh, and lots of times the charts were wrong. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. You couldn't even, they were written out in pencil. <laughs> so, right. But lots yeah. of, majority yeah. of the times it would be like with Mark, it, Mark Lindsay was like, okay, I'm doing the stuff, the key of the record, same arrangement as the record. There might've been one song he might've dropped like a half step down. You know, I, I think it's really amazing how many people, because, you know, we've both done the sideband thing for so many years, how many people don't get that there's so little rehearsal that goes behind that. I mean, you are expect you are hired oh, yeah. to be a guy that shows up and can really get it done with very minimal and, you know, have the right attitude, put the right jacket on, you know what I mean? And play the parts, you know what I mean? Don't eat all the good roast beef in the dressing room, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were really required to just, you know, just be the good guy, man, and, and don't, you know, just be a good hang, play great parts, and then go home. You know, that's really what, what a sideman is. I mean, it's, it's really about, you know, being, I think on a lot of levels, it's about more about being a great hang than it is to be a great player. Right. You know, because everybody's a great player. I mean, at our level, everybody can play everything all the time, anytime. They're aliens out there. Right. right? But but just being able to, to get along with people is really super. So, you know, you've done so much stuff. I could go on and on and on and on. But, you know, that's not exactly why I wanted, I invited you to talk here today. Because you and I share something else in common that uh, I became aware of and, and we touched based over the years that uh, both of us kind of hit to the point where we decided that we needed to make a big change in our life, mm -hmm. you know? And my story is pretty well known, but I really would like to, to know a little bit about your story. Sure. You know, uh, what I can tell our listeners is, is that you are a sober guy. You went about it a little bit differently than I do, but tell me about what it was like for you before you made that turn into the decision of, I got to change. I got to change. So what was it like for you? I mean, were you, when you were growing up, was it like, you know, let's have some party goods and play or, well, I mean, was it, was it separate for you or was it all together for you or was it both? What was it like for you growing up and playing? When I was young and put into that position in those early days in the clubs where I was underage, you know, my parents were there, but was it wasn't until the opportunity came to, to tour with Paul Pope. I was still 16 years old at the time. And I remember my dad telling me, pulling me aside when they finally let me do this. I'm not sure if I could say the actual language, what he said to me, he goes, this is all fine and all, but like if, if you start drinking and drugging, this bullshit's done. Right, right. There's a funny story about that. My folks came to visit me two weeks later in Buffalo, New York, and my dad's pulling me aside. Come on, have a shot with your dear old dad. <laughs> so that went out the window.
Isn't it great that you had the support of your parents yes, when you were absolutely. playing then? You know, that's that, I'm always amazed by that because my dad was in the music business. My dad worked for Capitol Records. And he, I, I really don't think he wanted me to do it. I really don't think so. Wasn't that close to my mom, but I, I, I remember thinking my dad, I'm really not getting a lot of encouragement here. I mean, he, he kind of figured that the way to make money in the music business was one of the guys that made money off the guys like us. Right, right. There were because he always just said there's a constant dream of coming and going of you guys, right? Which yeah. is probably true in, in retrospect for that party, a little bit of partying, a little bit of playing. Was there ever a moment where you you know you started to feel like maybe maybe there's something happening here? Maybe for me, I I, I always say that was stage two for me where you know the consequences started showing up, right? You know, like dude, do you know what you did last night on stage? What what? Yeah, there was there was a few of those in my situation, but it was more health oh, issue for me. Yeah, we talked about that. I went through a phase where that was thing, and then I went through a phase where I was actually being functioning right. and being fine. But it was my health that was brought to my attention. You know, it's uh, right. 2015 or 2016. Yeah. Where I w- yeah, let's get to that, man. Where was the, the yeah. red light or the stop sign, the blinking lights that you kind of said, wait a minute? Hold on, hold on. What happened then? I was living in Chicago at the time and I went in for a, uh, you know, my colonoscopy. It was in my 50s. It was time. And I woke up from it and I see the doctor like this far from my face and my wife right above his shoulder looking down. And he's, and he was very stern. He looks at me and he goes, William, you need to make life changes right now. Mind you, I'm coming out of a sleep. And my wife's like kind of, <laughs> and it, it was it was kind of hard yeah. to take in, you know. Obviously, you're in denial. I was in denial. Uh, I was like, "What the what the hell? What the fuck does he know?" <laughs> you know, I went through right, all exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, that's our that's our first re- that's our first response, isn't it? Like, you know, no, no, no. Right. There's no problem. No, no, no. I got this. Mm-hmm. I got this. I got this. Right. Other guys got the problem. I know right. who those guys are. Right. But not us. Exactly. Not us. Right. Got it. Go ahead. I went through like a two month period of denial where I didn't listen to him. I kept continuing what I was doing. It was one gig I did in Chicago with my friend, Phil Barron. If you remember him from, he was used to be in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I did my normal, got my double Stoli tall diet Coke and a cup of Jaeger to kind of loosen up. That was, that was another excuse. Oh, it's going to loosen up my vocal cords. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll sing better. I'll sing yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. I'll play a little better. If you know, if I chill, man, I'll be better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it, it was the moment the alcohol hit my system that night. It was, it was the strangest thing. It was like a toxic instant, violently ill. Right. I can't explain it other than that. Yeah. To where it was like, whoa, maybe there's something to this, what he's saying. Right. If I look at pictures of myself back then in, in like 2015 or prior to that, you know, I was looking yellow, looking bloated. Yeah. I just thought, well, that's the way you're supposed to look in your mid fifties. You know, and you're thinking, hey, I'm still doing it. I'm still doing okay. I'm still gigging. I'm still I'm still getting calls. I'm still playing. I'm playing pretty well. I'm still at a pretty high level. I'm making some bones. I'm doing okay. Hey, I don't have that big yeah. of a problem. Not me. Not me. Right. right? I got gotcha. you. It was that moment that I decided, okay, it's, I, you know, this is serious. It finally dawned on me that like, yeah, you're, you're not going to be here if you keep doing what you're doing.
You know, in this podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, having that moment. And, you know, some people talk about it as, you know, a spiritual moment or the moment of, of change, moment of reckoning. But I think everybody's got that one place where they realize this is different. This is something else, right? It's another level. Really tough to put into to language what it was for me, but I know that I felt it. And I know that I hear it from other people where they say, you know, and that was the time. That was the moment where even if it didn't get fixed right then, I knew that was the time. That was the turning point, the tipping point. We talked before this interview when we did the, hey, what are we going to talk about interview? And you'd mentioned to me before that, you know, it wasn't, you didn't turn and go into a treatment program. You didn't turn and go into a 12-step program. You didn't go off into an ashram. You didn't go off, you know, (laughs) into a a super vegan, you know, trip. You just kind of decided that I want to live. And I want to change. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit about, I talk a lot about recovery. I t- you know, everybody knows I'm a 12-stepper. That's my deal. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of ways up the mountaintop. And there's no one way that works for everybody. And I think that, that our listeners that are out there that really want to hear you know, somebody say, no, 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 this is the one true way. If you don't do it this way, that's really erroneous. Because the fact of the matter is, whatever works, works for you. There's a lot of ways. Get up, get up the mountain. That's what's important, right? There's no one true point north. So tell, tell us a, a little bit about what it was like for you when you decided, I made the moment, you had that moment in the club, and then what were the first few miles like when you started onto a road of, did you come out and tell everybody, I'm done, I'm done, I'm not drinking anymore? I did, I did. I, I did it for a few reasons because you know as well as I do when you're in the business and you're, out and about people, hey, have a shot, come on, have a drink, you know. Oh, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's why I made it known because a lot of people didn't really, I I guess I got the personality where they don't take me seriously. Well, this, I was serious. I I put it out there. I said, I'm done. And from that moment on, I got to say, it's, it's, it was very hard, especially being on the road. I'm not in a band with a bunch of drinkers, so to, so to speak, but we, we were known to have, after the show, we were known to go back to the hotel. What else is there to know? do, man? What else is there to do? Everybody thinks we have this great life when we're on the road. You know, we're, we're all these great parties, and then we go to this and do this. It's like they're watching that, that, that was like some rock and roll movie. But you know what? If you do that, you're dead. You know, you can't, you can't get up, right. you can't travel 400, 500 miles, two flights, get to a gig, sound check, do the gig and do that every night. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, right. mostly it's TV, yeah. uh, kicking something to your room, crashing in front of your room. Hopefully if you're really lucky, you don't have a roommate. No, no, you know that's, I mean? uh, no, that's those right. days. And I, I don't think I could do this, but <laughs> being with a roommate at this point. Yeah. Right. Stage of the game. Yeah. Right. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about that, about that turn. So I remember that very well. You're sober, you know, and sometimes you don't always owe everybody an explanation about why you're not drinking, right? For me, it was just like, hey, man, at first I I just copped because I didn't really want to tell my whole life story. I said, you know, I'm on some medication. I can't do that. Or, you know what, dude, I'm not feeling well today. Thank you very much. You know what I mean? So um, Eventually, though, I did get to the point where I said, you know, man, I don't really do that. I don't drink anymore. So so how did it work for you? What were the things that you were saying when you first decided that, okay, here's what I'm going to tell people that want to line up 14 shots of Jaeger for me? I went into isolation. Ah. In, in, in other words, I basically did the show. I didn't go down to the lounge and hang with the guys. And, they, and I got some flack for that. Mm. At that time, it was the only way that I could make this work. I had to kind of like... Yeah. 
Great show, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. What's what's lobby call in the morning? I'll see you then. Yeah, that's tough, Billy, because the hang is everything on the road, bro. Right, it's tough. Yes, you know, and and everybody like, well, what's the deal? You know, why isn't he hang with us? What's he? What's what's going on up there? Has he got something happening? <laughs> you know what I mean, is he plotting to be in another band? Did he meet a girl? I mean, all these things that go through their minds about you know when you don't hang with everybody. So tell me how that that worked for you. They knew my situation, and they know why that I had to stop. But it was like, I think they missed the interaction with your, with your bandmate, with your bro. And I still have a hard time trying to make that social connection as far as like, you know, to me, I, I really don't feel like I belong in a bar if I'm not working mm. in it. If, you know, I, if I'm not working in it, I'm not going in. Uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of what I've been doing for the last almost four and a half years. Right, right. And I, I think that's something I need to work on still. Uh, the change because you can't just close everybody out. But uh, that's what I did. I've been getting better with that. We had the total isolation now because of the pandemic, but and I have to have an escape route. I don't want to be stuck. You know, when it's time for me to to leave, it's like a uh, great hanging with you guys. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna head upstairs now, or I'm not gonna be stuck like a vehicle or be stuck in a situation out to where. I want to have the out for me. I'll hang with you. Right. But right. Right. I want to be able to leave whenever I need to leave. Well, I see you're out there gigging now, man, and and I'm also starting to do some work. You know what I mean? Mostly solo stuff because that's out there for us. And I, I always tell my friends, you know, thank goodness sure. that I had put together an act before COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to go out and sing and play and do it. You know, the guy at the, at the vineyard gig or the guy. I mean, but there are certain things, especially in 2021. There are certain jobs I'm not going to take anymore, and that has to do with the loud sports bar guy over in the corner playing music thing. I just don't. Feel feel that that's appropriate for me anymore being a sober guy and I just I, I mean you know what are your thoughts about playing out now with a COVID B being sober and C you know people who you know are, are not necessarily as how shall I say respectful you know what I mean because if you're going out to a, one of those places sometimes you seem to get really people most people are super super cool but then there's the guy right? The guy. And I had one a couple weeks ago. Stood right in front of me. You know what I mean? You know, you, you, you're famous. You're Buckley Shad. And I'm like, dude, I'm doing my thing here. <laughs> you know, can you step to the side, please? Like, you know, how, how are you dealing with those guys right now with COVID? Especially in this pandemic, any, the few gigs that I'm doing, I try to be in spots where I'm definitely separated from everyone. Right. I keep a lot of people give me flack, but if I keep the mask up here yeah. when I'm singing, but if somebody comes up to me, even in the middle of a song, yep. it goes. <laughs> I, I treat it as a job. I'm there for a job and I try to I try to be engaging as best I can. And if there's people that I know that came to see me, mm. I will go up and say, Hey, how are mm. you? I, I take very little breaks. I just I, if if I'm on a break, it's one, it's even better for my voice just to sing straight through. On a three-hour gig, I do about a 15, 20-minute break. That's it. I, I don't want to be off and walking around. So, I mean, here's the other topic that I, I talk to, like to talk about a lot of players, and especially players that are sober, is, you know, we had our whole full, whole world drop out. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I, as you know, on the big stage stuff, it's there's it, the whiteboard is clean. There's no work planned in, on that level. Because this podcast, I just want to let, let you know and let our listeners know, this podcast really... 
is you know about it's about addiction, it's about substance abuse disorder, but it's also about mental health issues, people with physical mm-hmm. dis- disabilities, you know, overeating, you know, anybody that right. feels that they you know they really need to hear a story about the lighthouses and lantern holders of people that are making it, people like you, you know. So how are you coping with you know when when you talk about some of the statistics out there? I mean, nineteen percent of the population, one in five, right now is suffering from some sort of you know recurrent anxiety disorder. Maybe one in 10 is suffering from depression. How are you coping with A, being sober, B, no gigs, C, you know what I mean? You know, the, our lives have changed it. And I'm not really quite sure when it's coming back, brother. You know, I'm not really quite sure. How are you dealing with those things? I think overall, I try to be optimistic. Yeah. I have a good support system here with my wife and our little dog. But, you know, there's good days and bad days. I just try to treat every day. It's like there were a time to relapse. It would have been now. I just say every day, not going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And I just try to be optimistic as best I can. For me, it's the music, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the music. I I, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but no matter how crappy a day I have, it's always better when I can pick up a guitar and, and take my head somewhere else. Or for me, being an expressionist and a writer, uh, if I could sit down and say, uh, you know, I really want to capture this kind of feeling in a song. We talked a little bit about that, you know, about songs that, that you know, you felt were super important to you. And I want to talk about that. You, know, you talked a little bit about the thorns, you know, among the living song. Yeah. And, and I kind of, even though we can't play it right now in this podcast, you know what I mean? I kind of wanted to dig in a little bit. You know, I, mean, I went through it and I took a look at some of the lyrics, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's such a beautifully written song, you know I mean? You know, because you know it makes you cry because you can see what's passing you by because you feel you can't decide among the living. What Tell me what that song meant meant to you and, and wh- wh- why it struck yeah. you so much. What was it about that song, dude? That album came out in 2003, about maybe a month before my dad's passing. Right, right. And it was, uh, that song kind of had a meaning for me right around that time. But, but now that I've made the decision to be sober, it kind of took on a different meaning. Right, right. What it's saying to me, it's, it's life is not as dark as it seems. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, at least how I'm taking it or interpreting it. But it is a beautiful song. For me, summer of 2015 was, was the summer that, um, that I discovered the Jason Isbell record, Southeastern, right? And that was his first coming out record of, of being sober. And those songs just floored me because that first summer I was in such transition. I, I think, you know, I was working in the corporate world and doing the rock star thing on the weekends. And I had been divorced and I had just, you know, decided that I needed to exit the world because the chronic stress of working in that world, as it can be when you're traveling all the time in any gig, man, come on. When you're doing what amounts to 260 to 270 dates a year on the road, no matter what profession you're in, you know what I mean? I'm sorry, it beats you up. It beats you up, you know? And I was kind of in that road for the corporate life, traveling that much, two to three weeks a month minimum, you know, at least 10 to 12, 15 days a month. When I heard that song, it just flattened me because what I was doing at the time was doing a lot of walking, you know? And walking to me seemed, it was like a walking meditation. I would put the music in and I kept thinking, man, you know, it is possible. 
to do these things sober. It is possible to be able to play. It is possible to be able to write. It is possible. Where was the breakthrough moment for you when you decided to get sober? Hey, I guess it's a two-part question. Did you notice that when you got sober that it was different playing and singing? And B, you know, was there a moment where you said, wow, wow, this is different? How was that experience for you when you decided pre and post? You know, for me, at the in the beginning, I think pre- it was more fun, probably, in my mind. And then when in the post, after the decision, obviously, things didn't feel as fun. You know, the upswings, I actually felt better. Lost weight. I mean, I lost weight instantly uh, that first three months after, after I quit. Right. But unfortunately, I'd replace one addiction with another. You know, I kind of tend to go to sweets now that I normally <laughs> didn't before. Very common, man. Very common, you know, because our bodies crave that, you know. I can remember listening to music that I had recorded, you know, some of the records that I was doing with Michael, especially around, I'm not going to mention the, the, the era or the record because I don't want people to go to those lists and, and say, oh, I heard Mark Lee, he sounded kind of like he was drinking. But I can listen to some of those recordings and some of the recordings I did with other artists. And I just feel like there's just this, it's like it's, it's shallow playing. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was playing the right stuff, but it really, I wasn't being inventive. I was, it was almost like I was just barely giving people what they wanted and getting the heck out of there, Yeah, you know, whereas now I approach it a little differently and, you know, maybe we missed the mark on some sessions or some gigs and stuff like that. But for me, the playing is, is, is so much more alive yes. than it was before. Right. And I also noticed my physical stamina is better. Yeah. I don't feel as tired. I'm not, and I look at pictures of me, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, that, that's definitely, you definitely look healthier now than you did then. You know what I mean? I, I definitely feel that, that stuff going on. So I guess, you know, just to, to kind of wrap it up, I want to just just kind of thank you for being here and sharing your story with us. But, you know, I well, mean, thanks for having if, me. if you went back, man, I always like to ask this, this this question of everybody because it's kind of the way I close this program. But, but you know, man, if there was a an app on our phones, which was like a time travel Uber app, right? And we could, we could go like, man, I'd like to go back to this. And, you know, if I, if I went back to talk to myself when I was in the midst of the darkest part, right of the using and stuff you know what i mean i i think i would say some pretty significant things to that person i would tell them a lot about you know hang on keep the hope but if you my friend could get in could get up your phone out right now and get that time travel uber app out and go back to yourself and tell yourself hey man what would you say what would you say well first of all i would go back to around the period of of being with gary lewis because gary struggled He's, he's a sober guy now, but he struggled and he had a band that didn't really respect him as far as, you know, we were, ah. right. I saw Gary. I really don't have to go back to time travel. I had the opportunity to kind of make that right with him. I actually saw him before, before the shutdown. I said, you know what, Gary? Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I said, look, I, I, I apologize to you because I know now what you, what you were going through and that had to have been tough. Your own guys being drunken messes. Well, he was too, but he was struggling. He was on and off. And I would go back, if I were to do things differently, I would have at least been a little bit more respectful Yeah. for somebody that's struggling. Now I'm in his place. And I at least I was so glad that I, was, I had an opportunity to, well, we were on a show together and I saw him and I apologized. 
That's awesome, man. That's awesome. You know, I, I, we, that's part of the amends process we do in a 12-step program. And it's just not, we call it cleaning up your side of the street. You know what I mean? Sometimes people don't, you know, sometimes people are like, women, you know, but most of the time, when you say, hey, man, I'm aware that maybe I wasn't, you didn't act right or behave properly when I was doing this and I want to, you know, make it right with you. Most of the time people say, dude, just keep doing what you're doing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. just keep telling people, having the courage like you are today, Billy Sullivan, to come out and say, hey, man, I had a problem. And I and I de- I'm dealing with it. You know what I mean? Because I tell yeah. people there really isn't any cure for for addiction and alcoholism, but there is treatment, and the treatment is a one day at a time. You right. know what I mean? Just one day at a time. I I like to say I get my moleskin out every day, and I write the date, and I circle it in highlighter, and in, in like a little box, because I know I just got that one day. And you know, and, and as, as we become you know more experienced in the road of life as musicians, one of the things that's the most tragic for all of us, and I call it the third set of our playing, right, is you know you're warmed up at the third set, but unfortunately your friends start ducking out the back door, right? Yeah. And and that is to me the every day is so precious, man. Thank you so much for for being on this thank this you, podcast, Mark. and and I just want to say to all our listeners out there that you know you know thank you for hanging with us for another edition of Recovery Talks. You know, stay. Stay tuned for more episodes as they come along. And we highlight the people on the front lines in the recovery movement, the lantern holders and the lighthouses. And until then, everybody stay standing and steady on. <laughs>